Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 10. We are, if you are visiting with us, we are going through the book of Mark, verse by verse. We are this morning going to read from verse 32 through verse 45. So it's a bigger chunk of Scripture than normal. Let's read this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be your whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and this beautiful morning together. Lord, I pray that you would take what we've just read and you would open our ears to hear what you are saying. Lord, I ask for help to preach it, and I pray, Lord, this morning you would be glorified in it and that we would walk away knowing more deeply who you are and who you expect us to be. Lord, I thank you for that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is, in Mark chapter 10, this is the third time that Jesus has predicted and told his disciples, I am going to die. And this is the third time that they don't get it. So just saying that up front, they are as spiritual as a doorknob. Okay? They do not get it. Now, this is interesting because back in chapter 8, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus' response in the book of Matthew when this happened to Peter was, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, in order for us to gain spiritual insight, 
God's got to give it to us. But when God gives it to us, it doesn't necessarily mean we got all the understanding that comes with it. In fact, it definitely means that we aren't always going to have it all figured out. Maybe some of us can breathe a sigh of relief over that, that you're not going to have everything figured out. And yet, on the other hand, there is an expectation from God that you grow in figuring it out. That is maybe an easier way of saying sanctification, that we are supposed to grow in our relationship with God. We are not supposed to plant ourselves in a chair in a church and do nothing until we're dead. That is not what we are called to do. We are called to grow. We are called to minister. We are called to do what God calls us to do. Now, that's going to be different in all of our lives, but giving Him glory is true for all of us. Preaching the gospel, sharing it with everybody around us, is true for all of us. And there's some other things in this text that are true for all of us, which I will save for the end. This third time, Jesus is way more specific. He, was, he told them, and uh, you don't have to turn there, in Mark 8.31, he made the same prediction. In Mark 9.31, he made the same prediction. And here in chapter 10, he makes the same prediction. And he says a little more detail, and you can see the detail that they're going to mock him, spit him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, after the third day, he will rise. This is so specific, and we everybody remembers the crucifixion narrative, right? We know that this is what happens. We know that they blindfold him, and they hit him, and they say, prophesy to us, tell us who hit you. We know they tear out his beard. We know they spit on him as a, as a mockery because he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. We know all of that that happens. And so some theologians out there... Uh, they say there's no way that Jesus could have done that. People are always trying to remove the supernatural element out of Scripture, and they're trying to, their, their default setting is there's no such thing as God doing miracles or the supernatural. So there's no way Jesus could have predicted or prophesied what exactly was going to happen. So let me just figuratively crumble that up and throw it out the window, because that is exactly what he did. When Mark writes this down after the fact, he is giving us an account of what Jesus said. Because in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus is progressively opening up the eyes of the disciples. So by the time we are looking at, literally, they're, they're looking at Jerusalem and they're headed up, because Jerusalem is up on a hill. So anybody that approaches Jerusalem is technically going up to Jerusalem. I always get frustrated. This is a parenthesis. Whenever, whenever I'm in Huntington and I'm going down to Prestonsburg, everybody knows on a map that Huntington is here and Prestonsburg is here, right? So when somebody says to me, are you coming up to Prestonsburg? And I like short circuits in my head that the geography is so wrong. No, I'm not going up to Prestonsburg. I'm going down. Let me, and I want to get out a map, and I want to draw a red line, and, and, and that is pride and probably some other things that Jesus is going to have to work on. But, but in Jerusalem, it doesn't matter if you're approaching from the south, east, north, or west. You're going up 
elevation-wise. Plus, there's a little bit of symbolism there, but the holy city is a place you have to go up to. Is everybody tracking with me? So I'm saying that because it says right here in the text, Jesus says that they're going up to Jerusalem. So they're, we're here. The next six chapters are taking us to the crucifixion. And Jesus is predicting it. There's something weird that happens in verse 32. So we've got we to talk about verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Stop. Is that weird? It's not a trick question. This is about as normal as it gets. Jesus, as a rabbi, was always walking in front of the disciples. In fact, the idea of a disciple was that they were inside the dust cloud of the of the rabbi. That was the idea that you are so close to the teacher that you're inside the dust cloud that he's leaving as he walks on the street. So Jesus walking in front of them is not strange. It's not out of the ordinary. So why does the next part of the verse say, and they were amazed? And those who followed were afraid. I was reading this yesterday and I was like, that's weird. And this is the way we got to read the Bible, by the way. You, gotta, you can't just read it to check stuff off. I read. Do you remember what you read? Absolutely not. And we've all done that, right? You did it in high school. You did it in college. You've been reading. You've done it on the beach. Even if you like to read, your mind starts to wander. You're reading. And you're like, I wonder what I'm going to eat for lunch. But your brain is still reading the words. And you get all the way to the bottom of the page and you think, wait a second. She said what? And then you have to go back up to the top of the page or the page before or three pages before and be like, I, I read over these words and read nothing. Raise your hand if you've had this experience. Every last one of us have had this experience. You and I cannot read the Bible that way, but we do. We just read over the words. We said we did it. We assume there's some spiritual benefit, and we go about our real life, right? I'm not being too harsh. I'm just being real. That's, that's what happens. When you run across stuff like this, and it causes you to say, what? You should stop right there and say, what? And ask some questions and talk to God. Show me wonderful things out of your law. So, so I ran across this and I said, what? Why would they be amazed that Jesus is out in front of them since this is literally what they're doing every single day? Why is this different? There is a shift. It doesn't, the text doesn't tell us, but Mark makes sure that he tells us that they were amazed and afraid. There's a shift in what's happening. Yes, Jesus has been walking in front of them for three years now, but he is now headed to Jerusalem to do what he came to do. And he knows it. And something about the way he's doing it, just walking, has changed the way the disciples perceive Jesus. Is my wife in here? So I'm telling this story out of love and respect for her. because I would use me as the example, but it doesn't, well, I guess it would, but 
my daughters will know, my daughters will get this illustration better than the rest of you. There is a my wife is uh, without a poker face. She she does not possess the ability to mask what she's feeling. So if she's irritated in her face, you can see it. If she's happy in her face, you can see. There's no blocking what's going on inside of her mind. Her mind and her face are connected in a way that I've never seen in another human being. She is, she is, her face will tell you. But she has a walk too. So this is where the girls will definitely know that if they're in trouble and mom gets, looks like a military soldier, they know that they're in trouble. Does anybody else know what I mean? You've had a parent or a grandparent or somebody. You can tell the demeanor has changed. You can tell something is up. When I was a kid, when my mom got mad and was literally like a storm cloud walking through the hallway, and you didn't, there weren't even words. You just knew. How many of you know what I mean? You're just like, okay, something's wrong. I remember if Daniel's getting yelled at when we're growing up, all of us knew that it's time to go outside. Even if it's below zero, even if it's raining, it doesn't matter. You get out of the way. Jesus here is not mad. Jesus is not irritated or upset, but the demeanor has changed. And because he is the Holy One of God in the flesh, when his demeanor changes, everybody around him is like, oh my gosh, what's, what's up? So they're amazed and afraid. I would pay a trillion dollars to be there in a moment like this, to, to see this, because he knows where he's going and something starts ticking off in their heads. Because as we've went through the book of Mark, what is it that the disciples keep thinking? They keep, and this text is proving it to us further. They are looking at the Messiah in terms of the second coming. They had no concept of the first coming, which is what we're reading, and that the ultimate prophecies of the, of the Old Testament actually are pointing towards the second coming of Christ, which is what we're still waiting for. We're waiting for him to come back and restore all things, right? That's what we're waiting for now. But those prophecies existed in the Old Testament, and they all knew it, and they were looking for Jesus to restore all things now. And the only concept that they had was military campaign. Jesus is here. He's the Messiah. He is at some point, we know it, these 12 guys are thinking, he is going to get up on a horse and get out a sword and rally the troops, and we are his 12 generals and confidants. We're learning from him. So whenever he said stuff like, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, something in their brain just went, nope, that's not happening. Something in their head did not get this. Remember back in chapter 9, Peter takes him aside and rebukes Jesus and says, Never, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're mindful of the things of flesh and not the things of God. Something in their head just doesn't allow them to see or hear what Jesus is actually saying. 
in particular the fact that for the first time he says at the end of verse 33, they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. The idea of the Jewish mindset, the idea that the Messiah would be turned over to Gentiles, just no, uh, not going to happen. Let alone the mocking and the spitting and the flogging and the killing. So, having said that, let's transition to verse 35. Now, if you were to read my notes, I have verses 35 through 37 in my outline, and it says, competing for first place at the Missing the Point Summit. Because it's not just Peter who is the candidate for winning the ultimate prize of missing the point. Now, he's in first place so far in the book of Mark. There is no question that if anybody has missed the point, it's, it's Peter. He's also the one that God opened his eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah. I love that. I love that God opens the eyes of stupid people. Because I need all the encouragement and hope and help that I can get to know that God is merciful to hard-headed, thick-brained, arrogant, prideful people. Because if there's hope for Peter, there's hope for the rest of us. But James and John are not going to be outdone. They are, they are nicknamed the sons of thunder for a reason. We always look at John as the one who wrote 1 John, which has got all this stuff about love, and John is just some meek and mild. They were called the sons of thunder for a reason. For all we know, they grew up fist fighting. I, I don't know. They, they come to Jesus after Jesus tells them that he's going to go to Jerusalem. They all felt that fear and amazement. And Jesus goes off on this thing about being spit on. and they, Okay, he's clearly, this is it. We're going to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. That's what this season is. This is, this, this is it. Jesus is going to get up on a horse, get out a sword. This is it. So you can see what's on their mind. Teach, and first of all, their question is a little presumptuous. Teacher, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask of you, Jesus does not fry them into a little puddle uh, on the ground immediately. Instead, he says, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And here is their request. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, for us, when I read that, I'm thinking heaven, right? For them, they're thinking this kingdom you're inaugurating right here physically. And they may have had some aspirations for beyond that. We're not entirely sure exactly what they knew about this that revelation of exactly how it's all going to work in heaven isn't going to come until later. But they're asking to be in positions of power. To sit at the right hand, like the Bible says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, it's the position of supreme authority and privilege. 
and they're brothers, so they're like, it doesn't matter to us, it'll be in the Zebedee family. One of us on the right, one of us on the left. So there was probably some competition amongst them, but as long as we get to sit at the right and at the left hand. So Jesus says to them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. So they've clearly missed it. But whenever somebody says something like this to us, especially Jesus, he's letting us know you've missed the point of what's about to happen. And then he says, and it's clearly meant to have a negative answer. It's a rhetorical question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. These guys are called the sons of thunder for a reason. Because I don't know if I would have answered Jesus this way after he clearly he stops and he says, do you think you can drink the cup I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And their answer is, yep, yes, we can. This should make you feel good, too, that Jesus had more than one hard-headed, prideful group, uh, one guy. It's not just Peter. We're able. Now, Jesus' answer is somewhat unexpected. Listen to what he says. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So let me say just quickly about verse 40. Um, well, let's, let's scoot back. I don't want to go too far ahead. When Jesus says, are you able to drink this, this cup and be baptized? What do you think he is talking about? Because Jesus is headed to his crucifixion. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the prayer that Jesus prayed, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? You don't have to turn to these verses, but I'll just give you three that you can look up at home. Psalm 75, 8, Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, 15, and there are a lot more. And every one of those passages say that the cup that God gives out is a cup of wrath and judgment. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed and said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, he is praying, Lord, let this judgment that is about to come on me, your wrath for the sin of the world, is there any other way to do this? And then he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He surrenders, he voluntarily surrenders, to do this, and here in Mark, he's giving a, a, a preview and saying, are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink and baptized with what I have to be baptized with? I am going to the cross to suffer for the sin of the world, and I will drink in 
the wrath and judgment of God for that sin so that others can be free of their sin because I am going to take all of the punishment. Can you do that? And they said, yes, we can. So when Jesus says, you're going to drink out of this cup and you're going to be baptized with this baptism, Jesus is not saying that they are going to drink of the wrath of God and they are going to be baptized under that punishment for sin. What Jesus is saying, though, is you are going to share in the sufferings that I am going to undergo. John does not get killed. He's the only apostle that we know of that was not martyred, but he was sent to a prison island for for being a Christian. James, we find in the book of Acts, he was murdered by Herod. Let me read... uh, Let me read a couple of verses. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. So we can get an idea of what it means and what Jesus means about John and James drinking of the cup and being baptized with what Jesus is going to drink of. Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. We talked about that at Mother's Day. But verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is not a strange thing for Christians to be persecuted. Go with me to Philippians chapter 1. This is not a verse that I have ever seen on a Christian bumper sticker. Verse 29, Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake or for his reputation. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is a promise so far of persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ. And the language in Philippians is, it's granted to you. And if you stay in the book of Philippians and go to chapter 4, one of my favorite verses. Actually, I told you wrong. It's chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you hear the, the, what's happened to the Apostle Paul? I consider, I willfully choose to think this way. This is the way I think about it. I count everything as loss 
in exchange for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All the prestige that Paul had, all the money that he had, he had everything. He was a Roman citizen and a Pharisee, so if he was in a Greek-speaking town, everybody liked him, and if he was in a Jewish area, everybody liked him. He was liked, he was loved, he was doted upon, he was considered to be an honorable man. Indeed, I count all of that loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, same wording, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. This is what I want. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. So far, this prayer sounds great. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. This is not a prayer that most of us have ever prayed. Paul wants to share in the sufferings of Christ, the persecutions. We as Christians are joined to Christ in his death and his resurrection, and we are promised in just the few verses I've read that persecutions and suffering for his sake are going to be a part of our life. And here Paul is praying that he would do just that. That he would share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I will be honest, I am probably not there where I would specifically ask to share in the sufferings, but I can hear why he's asking. He wants to know Jesus. And Jesus, if we go back to Mark, looks at John and James and says, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized with what I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, yes, we can. And he says, in fact, yes, you will. You are going to drink of the cup in the sense you're not going to vicariously atone for the sins of the world. You're not going to go to the cross and die under the wrath of God. That is what Jesus is going to do. But you are going to suffer for my namesake. You are going to be persecuted for my namesake. You are going to be hated on account of me. Yes, you are. And that's what Jesus is telling them. And then he says, but to grant you the right hand in the left hand, some that's prepared by my Father. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. Now look at verse 41. This is how we know that the missing the point summit is not limited to Peter, James, and John. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I can't believe you asked that. Can you see this happening? Does anybody work in an office with other people? See some smiles now. You, ever, you, you know what office gossip is? Can you believe that she asked that? She's worked here for two weeks and she's already asked for a raise. You ever hear anything like that? or whatever it may be inside of the, there is always, if you get, this is, this is a universal 
truth of physics and spirituality. If you get human beings and put them in the same group for 24 hours, somebody's going to dislike somebody else. It's almost guaranteed. I've pointed this out before. Have you ever stood in line at Walmart and there's one cashier or maybe two and there's 400 people trying to check out? How many of you have had this experience? And when you're standing there in line and you're looking at your watch and your phone is blowing up because you're supposed to be somewhere and you're already 15 minutes late, is this a scenario that any... Okay, so you're there. Have you ever struck up conversation with the person in line with you and it went something like this? Man, I love Jesus. This is such a nice day and I am so thankful that there is a store that's 400 square feet of every item that you could ever possibly want and that I make enough money and have a job to buy those things. Is that the conversation that happens in the line at Walmart? Or is it maybe something more like, I can't believe they've only got two people! Okay. If you're watching online and me yelling just hurts your ears, I apologize. We find camaraderie around the things we'd like to complain about. Especially if we're complaining about other people. I dislike those kinds of people. That's what we we are absolute PhD level intellect when it comes to being mad, jealous, angry, frustrated, irritated, annoyed. And verse 41 is that. When the other ten hear it, they are indignant, indignant that they ask that question. How dare you? get there first and ask what I wanted to ask. Peter has already asked, remember a couple uh, weeks ago, Peter already already said, Lord, we left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? Their mindset, these are the people Jesus picked. (laughs) Are you not encouraged? These are the people, Jesus' leadership team. There's a lot of leadership lessons in here. If you think you're supposed to be some polished, perfect person setting out, all you young people, all you college age, ready to go out and conquer the world, if you think you're supposed to be some perfect example, look at these people and the way that they act and the way they talk and the things they think. And Jesus should have just fried them. Just every one of you guys are worthless. Just zap them all dead, and pick 12 others. And that is not what he does. He just patiently, lovingly, mercifully talks to them. I, if I read this and I'm thinking, if, if I saw the disciples, one, totally missed the point, I'm sharing with them for the third time, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked and spit on and die and raised the third day. And the very first question is, uh, who gets to be in first and second command? And then the other guys hear it and say, we can't believe they asked that. And they're bickering and arguing. I would just, because he's headed to the cross, you think he's, 
He knows what, what's in front of him. He's feeling it. And instead, as an example of his mercy and his love, he reminds them again for the third time, because this is the third time he shared about his resurrection or his death and resurrection. This is the third time, and the lesson is the same. Let's read verse 42, 43, 44. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. My kingdom is not going to work this way. You know how it works in the world. You know what the corporate ladder looks like. You know how power works. People lie, cheat, and steal to get to the top. If you work in corporate America, every once in a while you notice, or it doesn't have to be, wherever you are, people that lie, cheat, and steal sometimes wind up ahead. doesn't seem right. Why does the jerk get the job? And Jesus says, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus reminds them that kingdom leadership is humble and servant-oriented. Being a leader in the kingdom of God is not about power. Being a leader in the kingdom of God is about putting others in front of yourself. Being a leader in the kingdom of God is considering others more important than yourself. And Jesus ends it with verse 45. This verse, you could preach a couple sermons on it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I didn't come here. I am the King of Kings. And by rights, everybody should be bowing down to me and coming to me. I didn't come to be served. I'm on a mission. And that mission is to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom, it means a redemption or a redemptive price. Jesus voluntarily offers himself as the guilt offering for our sin. That is what it means to be a ransom. Isaiah 53.10 talks about him doing this as an offering for guilt. There's a, okay, yes, it was the will of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever really looked at Isaiah 53. 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of God the Father to crush him, God the Son. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt or a ransom. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand because he is paying a price for your guilt. He is making an offering for your guilt. And Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. 
you guys are squabbling over who is going to have the prominent position in my kingdom. God's going to take care of that. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. There's seats set aside. 24 elders. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But I'm here to accomplish a ransom mission to save the world from its sin. You guys are arguing over who's in charge. This isn't the way my kingdom works. Now let's end on something really positive. Well, this is all positive, but for the disciples' sake. Go to 1 John chapter 3, and we will end here. First John 3.16. So not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. This was written by one of the guys who said, we want to sit at your right hand or your left hand. This was written by somebody who, in Mark chapter 10, was vying for first place in missing the point. He clearly got it later. This is how God works with all of us, by the way. He works through our hard-headedness, our misunderstandings, our fear, our guilt. He works through all of it and brings us to a better understanding of himself, and he does that through the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what John writes. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, which is what Jesus said in verse 45, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is not the way he talked in Mark 10, but this is the way he's talking now. This is the great ransom that Jesus did, is not only did he ransom himself to the wrath of God to purchase our redemption, and he was a guilt offering on our behalf. Not only that, but once you are his, he grows you. He sanctifies you. He walks you along with him. And we walk by the Spirit and we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk with him and we grow and we get disciplined by him. We read the Word of God to see what manner of man we are. And then we realize we fall short and we repent and we are thankful for his forgiveness and we come to church every week and we interact with other people and we learn and we grow in Him. That is the Christian life. And here is what God does is He changes the way we view the world and we view the church. By this we know love that He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is what love looks like. Love came and rescued me. And now I, in that rescue of God, I am now a new person in Christ. I am going to live my life for other people. So John did not stay where he was. He did not stay a guy that was thinking, I wonder who's going to be in charge. He was transformed by the Holy Spirit to someone who says, 
how can I lay down my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ? So what I'm saying to you all is, this is what we're supposed to grow towards. And if you sit there and you say, I am in trouble, because that is not the way that I think, and that's not the way I pray. I Sometimes I think about it a little bit. I know I should do better. Here is the good news. He was very patient with those guys that did not get it. And he will be patient with you. As long as you don't treat God as flippant. Yeah, he loves me, I'm fine. He didn't care. It's all good. If that's the way you approach God, that is dangerous. But instead, if you say, oh no, I'm not like this and I need to be, that is a great sign. That is a great sign. Because you can go to him and say, Lord, I want to be like you turned a son of thunder into a guy who wrote, we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. That's what I want to be. If you ask God to do that, do you know what he will do? He will bring an annoying Christian into your life so that you can practice. Don't think he won't, because he will. Because here's something I've learned in 22 years of pastoring. we're all a little bit annoying. And we rub each other the wrong way. And that is a part of his plan that he has a body that's united in Christ and still has all these prickly personality issues and he squishes us all together and says, figure it out in my grace and my love and love each other on purpose and forgive each other on purpose and work with each other on purpose and you start getting past the superficial things that annoy you and get into the heart, which is, this is my brother in Christ. I will die for him. This is my sister in Christ. I will die for her. I will bring in food if necessary. I will help. I will pray. I will talk on the phone. I will get involved in different ministries. I will do things to help. So, if you pray that prayer, just be forewarned, a prickly personality is headed your way. And it is wonderful practice for you to say, all right, Lord, help me love everybody in this church and other Christians, especially when I disagree with them. And I read their Facebook post. They're an idiot. So what am I going to do? You're, you're going to love them. You're not going to figure out a way to lord over them, or ignore them, or pretend they're not there. Okay, let's stand up. We're going to be dismissed. My messages are always going to end in a similar fashion. We need to go to God on a regular and daily basis and say, help me be what you command me to be. Because without you, if I'm apart from you, of my own self, I can do nothing. But if I'm abiding in the vine, your word is abiding in me. You ask what you will, and it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you this morning for your word. 
We thank you for the hope that it brings. We thank you, Lord, that you never pulled any punches. You told us exactly what the disciples were like. You told us exactly what the human condition is like and where we struggle. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us in the struggle alone. You are with us. You are helping us. So, Lord, I pray this morning that we would all have opportunities to lay our lives down, to lay our preferences aside, to lay what we want or what we think it should be, Lord, to put other people first. Help us do that just this week. Lord, let us have opportunities to put other Christians first in front of our own needs. Lord, we thank you for your help. We thank you for the growth that you will bring in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.